every woman has a birth story to tell. This podcast is our birth story. The birth story of how each of us became midwives. Our journey to midwifery. I'm your host, Amber Wilson, a doctor midwife. And each episode, I'll take you on another journey to hear the stories of midwives all across the globe. Listen to each tell the story of their personal journey. Listen to the words of how each was birthed into the field of midwifery and listen to the stories of trials and tribulations along the way and the love and passion each holds for midwifery. Hey everybody, today on the podcast I get to interview Shauna, who is an amazing, wonderful midwife in the Portland, Oregon area. So Shauna, say hello, introduce yourself. I currently work in Portland, Oregon with a group practice. I catch babies in a hospital. And when I'm not doing that, I moonlight as a FNP in a collection of urgent care clinics in the Willamette Valley. Um, How long have you been practicing? So I have been practicing as a midwife since September 2017. I graduated from midwifery school, um, or I graduated from school, got my FNP and my CNM, um, and started working in family medicine in October of 2016. So I graduated May of 2016 and then spent my first year in family medicine before transitioning into midwifery and then later doing both. So you graduated with both at the same time? I did. I went to a dual program. I went to Emory University um, and was there from August 2014 uh, to May 2016. I did their family nurse midwifery program, which was five semesters um, to get eligible to sit for both boards. Nice. I was busy then too. Yeah, still busy <laughs> forever. Yes. Um, so prior to becoming a midwife, and this may go hand in hand with your choice just to be an FNP also, but what um, made you decide that you wanted to become a midwife? So before I became a midwife, I didn't, okay, um, I didn't really know what midwives did. So I graduated with my BSN and started working in a labor and delivery unit in a hospital. And I didn't know if I would ever get the opportunity to go to grad school. So I'd kind of prepared myself for like, maybe you'll be a bedside nurse forever and maybe you won't be, I don't know, life is unpredictable, we'll see what happens. And it took not very long in the hospital for me to figure out that I didn't really, there were things that I thought could be better. So my initial drive to go to midwifery school was um, I wanted more power and I wanted the ability to make choices. I wanted to call the shots. And that seemed like the most accessible way to do that because I definitely didn't want to go to med school. And I was already a nurse. So it was like, this is it just seemed like an easy avenue for me to get to a position where I could call the shots, um, which looking back sounds hilarious. Um, And then I also knew because I was practicing in a place where midwives were not super accepted. And um, some of the language in my immediate work environment at that time around midwives was not super positive. So I also knew like, okay, there's a wide variety of regional acceptance with midwifery throughout the US. And again, life is long and unpredictable and I'm risk averse and always want to be able to eat. So I um, decided to be an FNP as well as a midwife so that I would have a greater variety of economic choices, um, which has worked out well, though it did limit my choices in terms of where to go to where to go for grad school. 
So I know this was off of our list, but as far as like the culture of midwifery in Portland, um, is it welcomed? Oh, the, the In Portland, yes, very much so. But when I, so I'm not originally from Portland. I've lived kind of all over, but I grew up in central Texas and my first job was in a urban hospital um, in South Austin. Um, and even that environment is much more midwife friendly than it was when I was there. This was like in like early 2012. Um, and so the, like there are even parts of Texas that are really midwife friendly and Oregon is a fantastic place to be a midwife. But where I was in that like immediate work environment, I just didn't have a ton of exposure. And a lot of the people that I worked with didn't have a ton of exposure. So there was just a lot of ignorance about what midwives do. And I mean, it was like embarrassingly late in my, yeah, like embarrassingly late in my introduction to the world of midwifery for me to even figure out what all the midwife credentials were. Like for a while I was like, oh, midwife, like CNM. And there was no concept of like CMs and CPMs and all of the other ways that there are to attend births. <laughs> like I was just really ignorant for a long time because I didn't have a lot of initial early exposure in my initial environment. But no, Portland's great. Yeah, I think that's a pretty common thing, not yeah. realizing there are things outside of CNM. Yes. From the CNM perspective. Yes. <laughs> yeah. 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 Um, so obviously you picked Emory because that you wanted the dual. Did you consider ever any other schools? I did. So when I, um, I started my search with where I could be in person pursuing both degrees. And at that time that there were four universities that did that. There was, um, a university in New Jersey, university of Michigan, um, Vanderbilt and Emory. University of Michigan, their program was really long. So they essentially had you do first one degree and then the other. And the opportunity cost associated with not working seemed not worth it to me. So I didn't select that. Um, and then for some reason, I didn't want to live in New Jersey. I have nothing against New Jersey. I just didn't want to live there. Um, so I didn't apply there. But I did apply to Vanderbilt and I applied to Emory. I would have happily gone to either. Um, and for Vanderbilt, I got into the midwifery program, but not family medicine because I had no um, experience outside of a like reproductive health specialty. And at Emory, they just accepted me for both. Um, like they, they didn't differentiate. They just said, sure, you can come on down. So I went on down. And where is Emory located? It's in Atlanta, Georgia. So I moved from Austin, Texas to Atlanta, Georgia. Okay. So that program is an on-campus. Yes, it is an on-campus. I think that when I was there, they were transitioning to some more like blended online format classes. Um, but I don't think that they've transitioned portions of their program to be online at this point. It is still a like in-person program. But that that was a inclusion criteria for me. I, especially in my early 20s, was a real garbage online class taker. <laughs> and I knew that a um, in-person format was, that was something that really mattered to me. Mm -hmm. um, for that school, do you have any tips or any advice on what you thought made your application strong for somebody looking at that school? I didn't realize this until I got there, but having previous experience as a labor and delivery nurse was not a common theme through most of my class. And I think that more than almost anything else that made me stand out um, because it made me, um, it made me much easier to place for clinical settings. Like I, 
it was just in in the in the fitting together of all of the puzzle pieces of trying to figure out what students can go where and what sites will accept what like I I was an easy part of the puzzle and I had no real control over that I think that that was probably my most appealing quality I don't know if there was much else mm -hmm. that sometimes seems like a heated question if you I, need LND experience or not do you, okay. do you think so no, I have. So, I mean, I'm biased. I, I really like, I think that there were so many ways in which Midway Free School was easier for me for having had that experience. Like, I cannot imagine how hard it would be to learn all of the ins and outs and decision making of being a midwife at the same time that you're trying to get like comfortable with differentiating between like five versus six centimeters on a cervical exam. Like, I mean, I felt overwhelmed a ton of my time and I had all of this, like, I, and I got the opportunity to feel overwhelmed when I was doing my clinicals in a setting that very much felt like home because I did my clinicals in midwifery school in a hospital-based setting. So I was like, I had some odd emotional stuff with role transition within a setting that felt familiar, but I was in a setting that felt familiar. But at no point did I think, um, and I, I knew too that probably in early career, there would be times when I felt more comfortable um, around birth, because by the time that I hit midwifery school, I'd participated in like, I counted this out once, like 600 of them over the previous, like, and even if you're not like catching, you're, you, you, you just, you see things, you see people who are sick, people who are healthy and people who are having their babies a bunch of different ways. Like, so I knew that that exposure would be helpful to me, but I don't think that that, I think the effects that you see where you're comfortable because of increased exposure go away later in your career like by the time that somebody's been a midwife for like two or three years like no one cares whether or not you had any experience before you got to midwifery school and it is a totally it's a different job um especially in a hospital-based setting like there is some role differentiation between what it means to be a bedside nurse and what it is to be a provider and depending on the institution those divisions are harder um and then in my my first job as a midwife was in an out-of-hospital setting, um, and there were benefits to being familiar with birth before then. But then, you know, you have to learn everything that is specific to an out-of-hospital setting. So I, I liked. I certainly was well served by my experience, but I was definitely a minority in my class. And I don't think that you need previous L and D experience in order to be a good birth worker. And I mean that for all of the different ways to be a birth worker. I think ultimately the thing that makes you a good birth worker is being present in birth and the ethics that you bring to that situation. But I also very much hear that's a, <laughs> that can be a harder thing to like shop out in an interview or a like clinical setting where you're trying to tell somebody why they should trust you. Um, despite your like perceived lack of experience, um, or experience that they perceive to be less relevant. Like it, it's hard to develop an elevator speech around that. So did you work when you were doing your clinical hours at all? I did. So when I was in midwifery school, I worked as a nurse in a abortion clinic. I was at the Feminist Women's Health Center in Atlanta, which was a awesome experience, but sometimes made my work or my school, not school balance hard. Um, I usually did 10 hours. Well, like ballpark 10 hours, they were pretty variable, but usually about 10 hours. I usually did about 10 hours of work on 
Saturdays. And then I took triage call, um, which is just telephone call interacting with patients um, for like a week or two weeks at a time. And I did that um, mixed in with clinical hours. And that just meant that I usually didn't do clinical hours on Saturdays or I would build my work schedule around my clinical hours schedule. Um, what was your age as you were going through school? How old were you? Um, I was 23 when I started. So I, um, I started undergrad pretty early and that sort of bumped me. Like I, I, um, I was a nurse when I was 20 through 22. Um, I started midwifery school right after I turned 23 and then, um, graduated from midwifery school right after I turned right before I turned 26. Okay. Yeah. So you're never too young and never too old. No, never too young and never too old. And that like, um, I, (laughs) I so loved the, we had people at a variety of different ages and like a variety of different, um, life stages and work experiences in my class. And it was so cool to see what brought people to midwifery and especially, which I mean, it's part of the point of this podcast, but, um, it was also really cool as somebody who at that point was still really ignorant about all of the different ways to be a midwife, to hear about people's experience in interacting with birth and interacting with reproductive health that had nothing to do with the like CNM education that we were all electing to get now. It was just like, if, if our experiences had been a Venn diagram, it would have been a very complicated, very large, weirdly shaped overlapping Venn diagram. And that was really cool. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. And yeah, that's the point of this podcast. Everyone <laughs> comes into it from a different story and yes. we all have different stories to tell. So yes. I love that. You just reiterate that. Yeah. Um, so big money questions. How did you finance your education? Uh, by bargaining my it against my future. <laughs> um, I am in so much debt. I graduated with $150,000 in student loan debt. Um, And I knew when I selected a school, um, I knew that an in-person option would be much more expensive than an online option. And I weighed that. And then I was like, no, it's worth it. And I still think that it's worth it. But I feel that in a much more visceral affects my life every day kind of way than I did when I was like 22 and trying to make this decision. So I still stand by it. But it was like there were cheaper ways to accomplish what I accomplished. Um, I knew that that would be more expensive. And then I knew when I was going to Emory like Emory is a large private school and my undergrad was not a large private school. My undergrad was public. It's it's a totally different like class of, it it was a much more expensive education. Um, So yeah, I, I financed school through a whole lot of debt and then blunted my living expenses with um, the money that I was making working at Feminist Women's Health Center and then dealt with, emergencies that came up like um my car I had two I, I, yeah I lost a car um during my time in grad school and so like having figuring out new transportation I had to like go home for a family emergency like the number of times that I had to like cross the states from Atlanta back to Austin like I I dealt with those emergencies with savings that I had from working as a nurse but yeah I mainly financed my schooling by pitting my anticipated future earnings against it <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. Yay, student loan loan crisis. (laughs) No, no, eighty-five when they're all paid off. But (laughs) yeah, yeah. Um. So, do you remember how long after you graduated that you passed? 
did you pass the first time and what tools did you use to study? So I used the ACNM green book. I read it cover to cover, um, twice. Once I went through and I made notes on everything, um, which was kind of funny going back and looking at those notes. And then, um, I went back and I just read my like notes and highlighted sections. So I read that cover to cover twice. Um, and then I passed boards the first time that I took them, which was, a mm, uh, as soon as I could after graduation, I don't know if that was four weeks or six weeks, but I took that, um, and honestly thought that the comp exams at Emory were harder. Like I felt really well prepared in my degree to then sit down and pass boards. Um, I was comparatively so much more nervous about my FNP boards. Like as soon as I answered my last question in my midwifery boards, I was like, I'm a midwife now. Like, and then I got my paper and I was like, and yep, I'm glad that it says that true fact. And then when I finished the questions for my FNP boards, I was like dying before the piece of paper printed out that said that I never had to do that again. So comparatively, it was a better experience. And the ACNM Green Book was a great reference and my program prepared me well. So how long did it take for you to get licensed in your state? Did you get licensed in Texas? No, I did not. So I got licensed in Oregon um, because that's where I moved after I graduated. So oh. um, I, I moved out to Oregon the first time with a partner. This is my second round in Oregon. But um, the first time that I moved out to Oregon, it took me four weeks to get licensed from the time that I submitted everything. And that was licensing for to be an RN, an FNP and a CNM. I just submitted all of that and they approved everything within like two days of each other, um, four weeks after I submitted. That's good. They were on it. They were, they were so on it. The Oregon board of nursing has been like one of the easiest boards of nursing to interact with by far. It was great. Yeah, that's good. That's good for people who are want to work in Oregon. Yes. Um, yeah. So how after you graduated, did you have a job? How did you find the job? Like mouth, job boards? How did that work yeah. for you? So the year that I was, um, <laughs> so I graduated in 2016 and ACNM did not have their first virtual job fair until the year afterwards. But I was like on the ACNM job posting boards constantly, like every day. Um, but where I was going to work was geographically limited at the time. My then partner had a job offer that he was pursuing in Oregon, which was why we were going to move there. So we moved there. Um, and the only jobs that were available in the immediate area were jobs in family medicine. So I was really grateful that I had this other opportunity to work because then I started my career in family medicine and I worked with an awesome organization. I got great training. Um, and had no midwifery opportunities in my immediately available area. Um, this drove me nuts. I was panicked constantly about whether or not I would ever be able to work as a midwife because I was worried about would a hospital ever credential me? Would an insurance ever accept me as a provider if I didn't have previously proven competency? I got a lot of births as a, um, as a midwife student, but without having, um, me as a midwife, as a primary attendant at births, I was worried about credentialing in the future. So I really felt compelled to get a certain number of births in a two-year time period. And that led me to like hardcore job search, even while I was employed as an FNP. So started working as an FNP in October, 2016. Um, and then job searched pretty ferociously. Uh, ACNM had their job fair, I think in 
April or May of that year, like their virtual job fair. And I networked there and then I networked hard at every in-person ACNM like conference that I went to. Like I, I would show up to conference with like stacks of resumes that were already like ready to go. I had them saved in files on my computers that if I, if someone mentioned something, I could literally pull out my phone and forward them my resume within like 30 seconds. I checked the job boards every time I was, I was really trying to hustle to get a midwife job. And then by the time that um, ACNM that year had rolled around, I had just sort of resigned myself to, okay, I'm going to get a job and it's going to require a move. And at this point, my partner was feeling less attached to his job in the part of Oregon that we were in. Um, And I was feeling more attached to mine because I fell in love with family medicine in this way that I really didn't expect. So it both made me more more adamant in my search that I wanted to get a midwifery job because I still felt that fear that if I didn't jump in soon, I wouldn't have the opportunity to. But it also made me feel more picky about where I wanted to go to work as a midwife because I had such a nice work family in Oregon that I felt so deeply connected to. So um, after being really selective, I started getting some midwifery offers because I was now experienced as a clinician. Like I had family, you know, almost a year of family medicine under my belt. So I was experienced as a clinician and had gotten quite a few births as a student and had learned enough from working through contracts at my job in family medicine to be somewhat articulate in the job like search process. Um, So I was getting some offers and then I just got pickier about where I wanted to be. And it took me until September, 2017 to get an offer that I wanted as a midwife in a place that made sense for my partner and I, and that was how, we ended up in Denver, Colorado in a birth center, um, which is where I started my work as a midwife in October of 2017. And you're not there anymore. I'm not, um, which has nothing to do with my work as a midwife. It has everything to do with um, my personal life like imploded um, when I moved to Colorado. There were lots of reasons that Colorado was really great. I'd wanted to live there for like a decade before. I loved the practice that I was with. Um, I loved out of hospital birth. My heart is, despite where I work now, my heart is super into out of hospital birth. I think it's fantastic um, and I miss it every day. But, um, and then my then partner, my then partner's dad, was diagnosed with prostate cancer and he lived in Denver. So there were lots of reasons that Denver made sense. And then almost six weeks to the day after we moved there, um, my partner took me out to dinner and very nonchalantly nonchalantly told me that he had accepted a job in another state. And that really threw a monkey wrench into my life in a lot of ways. Um, And that our relationship did not survive, but it also meant that in that time period where I didn't have a lot of social connections in Denver was adjusting to a new practice environment. And then was honestly kind of shell shocked by this big shift that had happened in my personal life. Cause we'd been together for several years by that point. Um, I just kind of went back to the last place that felt like home and the last place that felt like home was Oregon. And I was lucky enough that there was a, I'd interviewed with the practice that I was with, or that I'm with now. I had interviewed with them when I like really early in my job search to be a midwife. Um, and I wasn't experienced enough then. And they told me that when they rejected me, they were like, 
you know, you, you don't have any experience as a midwife and you have only been in practice as a clinician for like, not that long, like six months at that point. So they weren't willing to take me on, but they put up a posting and the things that I had liked about them as a practice were still things that I liked about them as a practice. And I, (laughs) at that point just was trying to hit the reset button on my life. So I remember being like, Oh, I'm not like that much more experienced than I was before, but like, what, what do I have to lose? What the heck? Like I'll, I'll, I'm trying to get back there anyway. And they called me like the next day. Um, like they remembered my application and they were, they said that they were excited to see me reapply and it was really nice to do a phone interview and then get out there for an in-person interview and, um, things just sort of fit. Yeah. And that's where you are now. And that's where I am now. I do not recommend career transitions that, um, I don't recommend making career transitions in the way that that career transition happened for me, but it worked out really well. I'm very happy where I am now. So what is your current, like the practice look like your schedule? Yeah. So I, I currently work, um, I currently work in a private practice. We catch babies in a hospital. There are eight OBGYNs and four midwives. Um, and of the four midwives, three of us take, call. And I'm one of those three. We in the office have individual patient panels. So patients who come to see us as their primary provider for GYN or OB care. And then in the intrapartum setting, we all split call, but it's not even. So the midwives take on more call per individual than the doctors do. And that's something that um, there was a lot of conversation about, like um, throughout the construction of this call schedule and the integration of midwives into practice. Cause this wasn't pre-existing. Um, the midwives that are there as part of this practice location now are there because the practice was like, we're adding midwives in. Um, so we, we got the opportunity to sort of build these norms from the ground up. So we have our individual patient panels in the office, intrapartum, uh, we split primary call responsibilities. I take on quite a lot of primary call, but I do that electively. So I'm only in the office one day per week. Um, And then the rest of the time I have a very call heavy schedule and that, yeah, that is a, uh, it works really well for me and that's not mandatory for every midwife in the office. We've had a couple of different schedule configurations and we've had quite a bit of autonomy in figuring out what the midwife responsibilities are in a practice where we have midwives and doctors working in such an integrated way and also what works best for each individual. So but we you, have, Oh, if you could put a number on like how many yeah. hours you work a week. Yeah, you have I, I work ballpark 42 to 44 hours per week averaged. But because, so, so I work during the day, two days a week for day call, and then one day a week for office. And then I have a floating overnight or a floating 24 hour shift somewhere else in there, which means that my, I can work between 26 and 58 hours per week, depending on the week, but it averages out to 42 to 44 hours per week. Mm-hmm. Um, and the majority of that is call. And our birth volume is, about 80 births per month for the practice. So the you still work PRN as an FNP, as you said. Yes, and then I work PRN as an FNP, and that is 
That's 18 to... The lowest number of hours that I've ever worked as an FNP since I started moonlighting was 12, and the highest was 58 in a one-month period. But it usually averages to about 30 extra hours a month, which is too many. I mean, I love it, but it's too many. I was going to say, do you... Do you have any you time? <laughs> not, well, a, a little bit at the moment, but not as much. It's my current work-life balance is a, it's a work in progress. It's, it's a, it's a personal struggle. I'm, I'm working on it. Okay. That's yeah. fair. Fair answer. <laughs> um, so, and I know organization eight, how does that, like, how are your doctors with you guys, midwives? What does that look like as far as your collaboration? Yeah. Um, so at our, at my practice, um, we have, I think, really good relationships with our, um, with our docs. And we have, um, we have such good relationships with our docs that um, sometimes when I'm at like ACNM and people are talking about the struggles of being a midwife, I'm like, I need to be quiet right now because people are not going to like me if I start talking about my job. Because um, it is, it works out really well. But um, my practice has very clear consultation, co-management and transfer of care guidelines that we follow. And those, the formation of those guidelines um, predated midwives coming into the office location that I'm currently at. So my practice is large and there are multiple different locations, but bringing in midwives to the location that I'm at, that's the like, the, when I talk about building things from the ground up, that's what I mean is that yeah. we all come in like, you know, a year and a half ago and had to define what this looks like day to day in our practice, but we were really lucky to already have a lot of the institutional frameworks pre-existing. One of the things that I that really drew me to this practice, um, when I say that I sort of admired them from afar for a long time, I had interviewed with them, you know, before I interviewed with them to actually get my current job. Um, they have. My practice has very egalitarian opportunities for midwives, NPs, PAs, um, in terms of practice buy-in. So I'll never forget when I was interviewing for a midwifery job, also in the Portland area, um, with a different practice. And in this interview, I knew that this was a private practice where the docs bought in to their to their practice. And one of my questions in the interview was as a midwife, would I also have the opportunity to buy in? Like, and the answer was, no, we don't have that for the midwives because if we ever needed to change that service line, the practice needs to be able to do that. And that really stood out to me as like where I would fit within this institution. So it matters a lot to me that the practice that I'm at, like those buy-in opportunities are like, we all have the opportunity to be a member. There's criteria that you have to meet, but that criteria is the same regardless of your credential. And um, there are midwives who sit on the board. There are midwives in positions of leadership. There are midwives who are visible. We are built into the fabric of the practice. So it was really nice to have that already built in because it made a lot of um, cultural conversations about ignorance rather than about prejudice. So if a doc ever says something that is unintentionally offensive, I know it's unintentionally offensive. I know that like if they're saying something and it infringes on my autonomy or comes off in this like way that just feels icky, I know that they <laughs> they just don't know. Like, I mean, we midwives get so much... <laughs> 
we spend so much time thinking about power dynamics and having to explain to people that like, you can't call it a comeback. We've been here for forever. And like docs just don't have to have that same experience. So they're not aware of these dynamics in the same way. And it's just, I feel very lucky in that institutionally, I have really clear consultation, co-management, collaboration guidelines. I have a ton of autonomy and that is well defended and was well defined before I got here. And then from an interpersonal perspective, that means that I had a great framework to be able to say, like, we have to debrief about that because that felt really bad. And I know you didn't mean it and it still feels really bad. I love that you are part of a the bigger picture, part of the team and not just an employee. Yeah. And the um, yeah, yeah, <laughs> it's it's been really nice. The <laughs> one of the things that I thought of um, or that I would get frustrated about um, when I was in, in other times in previous settings, um, when I've been explaining the roles of midwives or um, the role of a nurse practitioner, I would have this like sense inside or this like inner dialogue where it would be like, oh, like this is so frustrating. Like I am not a JV clinician and I have never had to say those words to my coworkers because <laughs> they already know that. And it's really, it's been really nice. That is really nice. Yes. <laughs> I do not take it for granted. I'm not confused about whether or not I'm lucky in that way. I'm very lucky. Yeah. Yeah. So it seems like a good state to work. Oregon is a fantastic state to work from a legal perspective. And also I just happen to love my job, but no, I've thought about um, other states that I would be comfortable practicing in. And I, Oh, I just, I've gotten so spoiled. Um, I think I would super struggle, especially um, with my work as a nurse practitioner and seeing the wide variety of things that I see in urgent care. Like I can't imagine going somewhere where I had to have somebody like sign off on my prescriptions. Like I think about the number of things that I just don't, don't even think about and how much energy I would then have to spend thinking about it. And I just love not having to dedicate brain space to that right now. <laughs> yeah. Totally get that. <laughs> So going on to salary questions. Yes. However, you'd like to answer this. Um, you know what? Maybe a new midwife working in Portland could expect. Yeah. Does yours look like? And then benefits, CEUs, vacation time. Just kind of address that picture. Yeah. So I, between my two jobs, um, I don't get any benefits from my job as an FNP. Um, between my two jobs, I make low six figures, um, and that is like market in the Portland area for a new midwife would be low six figures from like one job working as a, as a midwife. Um, and the, the fact that I don't work very many hours as an FNP, but I'm compensated much more as an FNP. Like these are trade-offs that I knew when I took the position that I, that I currently have. I do have, um, CME or CEU benefits. Um, and I do have PTO, which encompasses vacation time and some holidays and CME. Um, and my company does pay for my ACNM annual membership, which is fantastic. Um, my first job though, as like a new midwife, um, working at the birth center in Denver, um, I, successfully, it's the best email I've ever written in my whole life. I successfully negotiated an initial starting salary of um, 82K up to 88. And I did that partially by talking about my experience as an FNP and how, though I was a new midwife, I was not a new clinician. Um, and then talking about what I thought I could bring to the practice, like why that experience would be relevant and the experiences that I had had um, as a nurse before. And so I, I talked about things that were not directly related to midwifery. Um, and also in, in that negotiation, 
there was no like carrot and stick here. Like I, they were not confused about whether or not I was super pumped to be working for them. I was like, I will accept like changes to like CME. I will accept changes to like time off. We can talk about different call or hour arrangements. Like I was very like, or, or different job duties. Like I really wanted to negotiate because I was taking a pay cut to be an FNP going to a CNM. Um, but I really wanted to negotiate, um, what that would look like. I wanted to make it hurt a little less financially. And um, I was successful in doing that. Um, yeah, that was also, I have to, I have to put in a bit of a plug here. Um, part of that came from having a really good group of friends who were like, you should negotiate even when it doesn't feel instinctive. And I, you should negotiate even when it doesn't feel instinctive. Um, and that I just, I can't, I can't recommend that enough. All the people telling you that it's normal to feel like you don't deserve to negotiate, but that you should are right, even when it doesn't feel like it. I love that. Thank you. Yeah. That's a great point. Yeah. And really important to hear. Yes. Yeah. Oh, and then one other thing um, about compensation. Uh, someone told me when I was in midwifery school, um, I even remember I went to um, a training session or uh, I went to a session that Vanderbilt was doing every year at ACNM about contracts and finding a job as a new midwife. Totally worthwhile session. Everybody should go if they're still doing that. Um, but the one of the things that they talked about was tail coverage in terms of malpractice insurance. And I didn't know anything about malpractice insurance, but tail coverage super matters. Um, and I have talked about that every time that I've accepted a new job and I, I would recommend that. I would recommend talking about tail coverage every time that you negotiate a new contract. Yeah. I do have to say in my experience in interviews is that that is specific statewide. Yeah. Some states like where I am, no one offers. It's just the thing. No one yeah. offers it. So if you're going to work here, that's yep. just how it is. It's just the way it is. Yeah. Yeah. It's yeah. a good But that is good point. Then. Yeah. Yeah. And something that should be addressed at the very least. Oh, yes. Yeah. So now that you've been in practice for a little while, um, does your reason for continuing to be a midwife, how has that changed? What brings you to work every day? Um, it has changed mostly because my, the way that I approach practice in general and the ethics that I have about health and healthcare, who gets to define what either of those things are, um, have shifted so much. Now what brings me to work every day is the fact that I literally cannot imagine doing anything else. And my identity as an FNP and my identity as a midwife are different. I sometimes I work as an FNP. There is no part of my life at any time where I am not a midwife. And that is just it's, it's the only flavor I come in now. Um, but the, and I, I think of that too, as a like, if someone snapped their fingers and suddenly there were no credentials and there was no medical institution anywhere, like people would still have babies and people would still help other people have babies. And so I think about midwifery and what drives me to show up. And it's a sense of, it's just part of being human. And I think one of my jobs as a midwife with the credentials that I have with the training that I have and at the job that I have is to take that sense and that humanity and the ethics associated with just showing up and being a good human um, and treating people with autonomy in a broken system. Cause I think that there are lots of ways that we're all familiar with in which the system is not ideal. Um, 
but that's what drives me to work is showing up, being a good midwife and a good human helping other humans have babies in a way that makes sense to them in a system that is not built to remember that that's the way all of that works, that like, that's why we're all actually there. Oh my gosh. I love midwives. <laughs> I know. I know. I just the yeah, I, we, we have such a cool job. We have like yeah. such a cool job doing such a cool thing all the time. I know. And we're all in this space, all the words I've heard from everybody so far, we're all in this space of like, just this is it this is what we're meant to do and people are human let's yeah. not forget that yeah and even when um i was looking through because social media is funny but now there are so many different ways to be connected with people who do work that you do or people who do work like what you do and um i saw someone and i'm acutely aware because of my work as an fnp and also my work as a midwife of ways in which i i identify as being like a woman in medicine and that's not but I don't identify as being a midwife in medicine. Like I figuring out those two identities and figuring out like, I very much feel like I'm a woman in medicine, but like midwifery isn't medicine. And even when I'm, yeah, I, I'm, I feel like I work in medicine, but spend the vast majority of my professional energy helping people who don't have medical problems. <laughs> and yeah, yeah. Yep. it's odd to explore that. It's such a special job. Yeah, the only it's, one we get like that. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. So, favorite question: What quality do you have that has gotten <laughs> you through this journey to where uh, you are today? So, some of it is stubbornness, and then something that has been useful to me in this job, um, in particular, where I. I was afraid of a lot of things, not knowing what I was getting into with a practice that didn't have midwives. And um, I felt very, the the two people who were hired with me um, initially hadn't previously worked as a midwife before. They were new out of school. And I felt very protective and very defensive. Um, but also like, you know, I, did, I didn't want to alienate the docs that I was working with, but I wanted to like defend midwifery norms. So I developed this um, work persona or like philosophy where I just stubbornly, cheerfully, happily pretended the version of normal that I wanted to exist until it became reality. And that has like served me super well. So I don't know if that's like a quality or a philosophy, but my like persistent, relentless, like pursuit of the normal that I want to happen and my complete unwillingness to entertain any other possibility besides that has like really served me well professionally. The idea that like no one would ever doubt the competency of midwives because that's just ridiculous. So if they ever do, that's just like, I mean, it's a very funny joke, but like not really relevant to my life. Yeah. yeah. Manifest your destiny. Like I'm Yes. Sure. Manifest your destiny and be stubborn about it. That is a like, that's a real thing. And that's a quality a lot of midwives tell me they have. Yes. Well, I think you have to. Either you... I feel like you have to have that in order to survive within the context of what midwifery looks like and that there's there's a whole podcast in itself of like what midwifery looks like and how that does or does not serve midwives. But yes, stubbornness I think is a pretty mandatory quality. You got to have it. Yeah. Is there any last minute advice, any tips if someone came to you and said I want to be a midwife that you would ask? Uh, yeah, my advice would just be to examine 
what you want to do and why you want to do it. Because often in a birth space, the thing that needs the most management is yourself and your own instincts. Um, generally, it's not the person that you're taking care of. Um, think about what you want to do and why you want to do it. And then once you have that figured out, move forward with confidence and competence. Like you've, you've already got this. listeners i hope you enjoyed hearing shauna's story as much as i did it was such a pleasure talking with her and interviewing her since this interview shauna and i have gotten to know each other quite a bit more on instagram which is the power of social media and i've just had a blast reading all the information she posts and she's such a passionate and caring and empathetic midwife if you want to see what shauna has going on and what she's talking about check her out at instagram as Midwife.shauna, M-I-D-W-I-F-E dot S-H-A-U-N-A. Also, you can check out a blog post by Shauna on my website at www.journeytomidwifery.org. I had the pleasure of sharing one of Shauna's more powerful Instagram posts. And remember, you can find me at journeytomidwifrypodcast at gmail.com. And you can find me on Instagram at midwife.mommy. Contact me, hook up with me if you'd like to interview. And please, please, please take a few minutes to leave a review on iTunes and share pictures of you listening to the podcast and tag me in the post. Until next time.